Did you ever wonder how some of the greatest people today become who they are? Most everyone has experienced that turning point in their life. It's these moments that forever changed who they were into whom they become. Today on The Moment with Chris Epting, you'll hear from these people and hopefully be inspired to find your own life-changing moment. Now, here is your host, Chris Epting. Hey there, thank you for joining me here today on The Moment as we uh, continue to meander through uh, virus quarantines and shutdowns. I, I know like a lot of my friends, we, it's, it's been a really nice t- chance, this, all this time we've got to go back and relive uh, favorite books, favorite albums, kind of things we grew up with. Um, for me, it's been going back and listening to a lot of music from the 70s, and I've been thoroughly enjoying getting back in touch with uh, some Tower Power records, Bump City, of course, Back to Oakland, other classics from back then. Tower Power um, they've been around since the late 1960s, uh, and they've never gone away. And they're back with a new record. They have actually a new album out called Step Up. Some quotes from of late, uh, Tower of Power remains as vital and full of life-affirming funk and soul, if not more, as they were in 1968. The band's dedication, hard work, and connection to us longtime fans prove that a, a good idea is timeless. That was NPR. Uh, Relics Magazine said, this Oakland groove machine is still in top form and soultracks.com said as productive as ever feeding their funk starved fans so it is really a pleasure today to welcome not just the uh founding member of the band but the band leader the one guy who's been there throughout emilio castillo emilio thanks a lot for joining me today in the moment my pleasure chris good to be with you how how's it been for you these last couple of months i mean you guys will get we'll get to it but in tower power still tours a lot you're out there a lot pleasing your fans it's got to be a little a little jarring to all of a sudden have that taken away from from a, a true road warrior like you and your band it's a first in 52 years it's a first. <laughs> i mean what do you do i mean you, obviously it's kind of a mad scramble when you get news like this and you can't really replan things what have you been doing i mean has it been a time of reflection for you like what how have you been using this new time that you've had well, you know, like you pointed out, we have this new record out called Step Up, and it mm-hmm. came out March 20th, you know, right when uh, the shutdown really started to, to right. effect. And uh, I have this great uh, PR girl, Fiona Bloom, and she's been besieging me with interviews. <laughs> you know, uh, I've been doing videos uh, for and radio IDs and uh, just, you know, a lot of that. So, uh, and then... Uh, I did some songwriting. There's a band out there called Lettuce mm-hmm. that we have some gigs coming up with at the end of the year. And they reached out to me. They had a groove and they wanted me to write something and sing to it. Uh, and we wrote this pandemic song and it came out really good. They're mixing it now. Uh, it was something that they each did in their own homes and then sent me the track. And I did my part uh, here in Phoenix and then sent it back to them. So, you know, staying busy. I also taught a recording class at ASU on Zoom, and uh, I'm a recovery guy, so I do a lot of Zoom 12-step meetings, mm-hmm. and, and I still work with the guys that I sponsor, and I'm really active in my church, so I've been doing Zoom uh, life groups and Zoom rooted groups and <laughs> Zoom church on Sunday worship, you know, uh, so, uh, you know, pretty busy and, and just uh, really enjoying. I got married last June. Uh, so we're still, you know, in our first year of marriage. And so 
all of a sudden, instead of me being gone all the time, I'm home all the time. So it's been really nice. Well, it sounds like you're, you're actually making a lot out of the time. That's great. Uh, that's wonderful. And, you know, again, it, it's the timing is always weird. But the fact that you have, uh, you know, a new album out that, that is getting really great reviews and great response, I guess, just speaks to the testament to the group that, that a good idea really doesn't get old. And, and for Tower of Power fans, myself included, it's always exciting, I think, when a group that you grew up, you know, really having a... Uh, an affinity for can still deliver because oftentimes, I mean, as you know, a lot of your guys you grew up playing with, you know, they almost sort of um, lapse into a, you know, they're sort of, or they're happy. You, I guess they call it a jukebox act. You sort of play all the old stuff rather than continuing to push and create new music. So I, I, I always love when a band, um, a legendary band still can break down a wall, can, still can do something new and still gets excited about the idea of going in and making new music. I mean, what was it like for you guys getting this done? Did you feel a lot of kind of spirit and energy from the past? I mean, did it feel like you were in there doing something important? You know, the creative process has driven us throughout our whole career. I mean, we've been through ups and downs, and even in our down periods, we always created new music. We always uh, tried it out on our fans and recorded it. And, you know, and that's a, that's a really... Uh, high. It's a big high for us to do that, you know, and it keeps us hungry to make music and perform it live and, and to just keep growing in our career. So, you know, to me, a band that doesn't create new music and new recordings is a stagnant band. And we work all the time and, you know, uh, we, we record and we, we write all the time. We do sessions with other artists. We stay busy. And to me, that's what keeps us relevant. Mm-hmm. Emilio, let's go back to the beginning a little bit, because I think for a lot of people, the Bay Area music scene in the mid to late 60s, it, it never stops being fascinating. When you look at just how dynamic it was and how creative and, and really how crazy what, you, what your band grew out of there. What do you remember back then, that era that's producing, you know, the Jefferson Airplane, you know, the Dead, Moby Grape, um, but then also, you know, Santana, Journey, Tower Power, the Doobie Brothers. What are your recollections early on of, say, 67, 68, when things really get going for you guys and who you who else was out there uh you know playing alongside of you well you know uh back then uh, for about three years or so the psychedelic thing was really predominantly what was going on you know bands like quicksilver messenger service big brother and the holding company as yeah. you said the dead and you know bands like that and it had sort of it, it wasn't gone but it, it had sort of run its course right and while it was very popular bill graham was Tweaking the collective ear of the <laughs> by putting uh, shows on where you'd see the dead, but you'd also see Miles Davis and Albert right. King, you know, and they had all these eclectic shows. And so, you know, these hippies were there, you know, uh, enlightened and uh, on various uh, chemicals and, and they're going, wow, this is cool. That's cool. <laughs> and, you know, it's like it's tweaking their ear, you know. And so right about the time we were ready to audition at the Fillmore West, they were ready for something different. Santana had hit, so the rhythmic thing was happening, mm-hmm. and we were a very rhythmic band. And then we walk out, you know, with uh, all these horns, and uh, they found it to be exciting to have a lead vocalist out front of a big band with horns working the audience. It was something new to them, and uh, they were ready for it. You know, and Bill Graham, <laughs> God bless him, he saw that, and he signed us to our first record deal. 
Yeah, you're right about how different I think um, you guys were definitely a breakout act up there. And this is an era when, when America is really getting used to uh, to horn bands. Within a few years, you know, we'll have obviously Chicago, you had Blood, Sweat and Tears, you guys. There was a real market, a real thirst and hunger, I think, for that kind of, of sound. And, and you guys, of course, had the, the Bay Area, Oakland, you know, soul piece to it, which made you, you know, extra distinctive, I think. Um, what was it like growing up? I mean, what were you listening to as a kid? What were the things that you cut your teeth on, say, in the late 50s, early 60s? Is it the typical stuff that you always hear about, Beatles, Stones, and all that? Or for you, was there, was there something else? Well, in the 50s, I lived in Detroit, and my father was a bartender. And it was right when, you know, the hi-fi first came out. And uh-huh. my parents were young, and they loved music. So they were playing albums all the time. And being in Detroit and, you know, him, you know, working in the nightlife, he had a lot of friends of color, you know, and we, they listened to stuff like the Platters and the Ink Spots and Dinah Washington and Nat King Cole and even, you know, uh, Bill Haley in the comments and Elvis Presley. And I loved all that stuff. And then my dad moved us to the Bay Area. And when I got out there, you know, I missed my friends in Detroit and the radio became my friend. And they were playing all those songs out of New York by, you know, Goffin and King and, mm-hmm. uh, you know, Lieber and Stoller. And then the Motown thing hit. And, uh, you know, I, I just I just love that kind of music. And uh, we also got into uh, the rock and roll when we first started to play music at 14 it was because we got in a little bit of trouble, and my dad said, think of something that's going to keep you out of trouble. You're going to come out of that room again. And the Beatles had just come out, and we said, we want to play music. And he took us to the store and said, whatever you want. And I pointed to the sax, and my brother pointed to the drums. We started the band that day. We didn't even practice for years and then join a band. We started the band, and then we learned how to play. And uh, we played the Stones and the Animals and all that kind of stuff, you know. But one day... I heard some soul music by a band called The Spiders, and I also heard Sly and the Family Stone before they ever made a record, and I I just became a soul music freak, and I've been the same ever since. Was there, do you remember, uh, I mean, a first show that you saw growing up, was there a live music experience that captivated you or inspired you that you can remember and say, okay, this is, this is the moment? Because again, there is something about, I think, a first concert or a first memorable show that captivates you. Are, are there one or two of those you remember growing up? Yeah, my dad was always big on uh, taking me to see shows, you know, and he, oh. was, he was pretty hip, you know. He's the one that first took me to see Sly and the Family Stone. Oh, wow. He's the one that first took me to see Ray Charles live at uh, Stanford University. Uh, he took me to see uh, Louis Armstrong and his All-Stars and Dave Brubeck at uh, Circle Star Theater. And, uh, you know, he took me to see a lot of great music. And, uh, and I loved all of it. He even took me to rock shows. I saw Sonny and Cher and the Sinful <laughs> Sound and... Uh, you know, just all kind of great bands. Uh, but you were exposed to a lot. When Graham embraces you and you start playing, you know, again, those bills he would put together, both to, both at the Fillmore East and West in New York and San Francisco, those were real game changers, I think, for people because all of a sudden, like you say, you could go see the dead, but also see, you know, Miles Davis. And, and that mix and matching was really special. Are there bills that you remember the Tower of Power played on where he, he did some of that or bands that you remember being maybe feeling incongruous, but in the end really was a good fit live. Well, I remember him bringing in Otis Redding and, uh, you know, Rasan Roland Kirk and putting them together with like Santana. 
<laughs> we played the show with Rasan Roland Kirk and Santana at uh, Fillmore East. That was our first Fillmore performance on the East Coast. Wow. Wow. Uh, you know, I remember Sam and Dave coming out and Eddie Palmieri and, uh, you know, just great, great artists that, frankly, those hippies never would have shot up. <laughs> you know, but Bill, Bill liked rhythm and he liked horns and so and he liked soul. And so he brought that stuff out and exposed them to it and they ate it up. What it was like for you first hitting the road? Because like you say, you've been on the road 50 some odd years. What's that experience like for you? Because again, whenever you talk to artists, there is sort of a change you go through when you first hit the road and, and sort of learn how to be uh, a touring musical act. What are your first memories about, about hitting the road with the band? Well, the first road trip we ever did, you know, we had gotten in trouble. Uh, we were underage. Mm-hmm. We had gotten busted by the alcoholic beverage control. We couldn't work any of the clubs that we had been working for two years already. You know, we worked clubs all the time as underage youths, you know. And when we got signed to Bill, we, we made sure we waited to tell him that, you know. <laughs> and, uh, but then after we were signed and, you know, they would say, well, we want to get you some gigs. You know, we said, well, we can't play clubs. And, uh, and the high schools didn't know us because we hadn't played high schools for two years, you know. And so he calls us one day and he says, uh, how'd you like to go to Mexico City for 14 days? And he sent us down there with another band uh, named Foghat. Foghat? I'm sorry, not Foghat. Uh, Kimberly, excuse me. Okay, okay. I was going to say Foghat. <laughs> yeah, as much as Bill Graham could put things together, that one seems a little bit, <laughs> a little bit too severe. But well, so we, you- actually, we actually did tour with Foghat a few years later. But anyway. We went down there. We were supposed to play 10 days and be off for four. And we got down there and the federales surrounded the place because they had stopped concerts for two years because of a riot at a Grateful Dead concert. And they wanted to bring Santana down. So we were like the test group. And uh, the federales made it clear they were not having it. They surrounded the place. So the place was empty. And so we played four days and they shut it down. But we stayed down there the remaining 10 days. And the... uh, Promoter Mario almost was really good friends with Jim uh, Morrison from the doors. And so he was down there with us the whole time. So my first road trip, you know, we spent two weeks with Jim Morrison, you know, and it was a party and it was, you know, I mean, it was so different for us. You know, we hadn't even been to Sacramento yet. As a- what was he like? We remember Jim Morrison. He was really nice in the morning. <laughs> <laughs> you know, uh, we see him around nine in the morning. That's a great book title. He was really nice in the morning. Yeah, but he'd already be drinking screwdrivers by nine thirty. You know, and by noon, I remember walking out of the hotel suites in Parador and looking up because I heard this commotion, and he'd be going ah and throwing up over the balcony into the Zona Rosa. You know, people looking up. And by nighttime, just out of his mind, you know, knocking over uh, the other band's equipment, uh, <sighs> stand, and just, just insane. So it was sad, and he died shortly after that. Yeah, oh my goodness. I am speaking with the one and only Emilio Castillo, founder, leader of, uh, of the great Tower of Power. If you would like to uh, say hello to Emilio or ask him a question, the toll-free number is 866-472-5788. That's 866-472-5788. Emilio, you, you're, you're a big band right out of the gate. I mean, you're what, 10, 11 guys pretty much uh, when you start? 
Yeah, we were 11 for a short while, but mostly 10 the whole career. What's it like to, to, to hit the road like that? Because that's a lot, that's a lot of guys to accommodate. I would imagine it lends itself to a certain uh, circus kind of atmosphere um, when you add it all up. I mean, do, was, it, was it hard to control, you know, moving everybody from point A to point B back then? Well, it's a money-eating machine. You yeah. know? These days when I do clinics, they say, you have any advice for young people? I say, yeah, start a trio. <laughs> but, I mean, we had a lot of fun. We, we made every mistake we could in the first 20 years, you know, <laughs> drugs and alcohol and just stupid behavior. And uh, so, you know, it could be a circus out there. But uh, we also had, you know, we were always very committed passionately about our music. Well, you know, it's interesting because when you talk to other musicians or you read some of the stories, I mean, Tower of Power, the name always comes up as being um, obviously not just a great band, but in terms of excess that you guys really pushed things to the limit. You know, you hear stories. And what's amazing, though, is that it never seemed like the shows suffered. I mean, you guys were ultra tight, um, super professional and, and, and really skilled at what you did. So it, it doesn't seem like, I mean, how do you keep that together? I mean, if half the stories are true from back then, how are you still able to maintain the kinds of shows and, and, and recordings that you did back then? You know, in, in our, uh, in our dysfunctionality, we were pretty functional <laughs> you know, uh, because, you know, if you think about it back then, that's what everybody was doing. So yeah. you know, most of the people out in the audience were just as out of their minds as we were, you know, uh, but you know the, my patented answer to that today knowing what I know now <laughs> that, you know, God did it we just showed up you know because we literally made like I said every mistake you could possibly make and, but he had a different plan for us well, listen, you know, I, 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 I'm with you there. I think a little faith probably went a long way back then in terms of what was going on. Um, but again, you still delivered and, and the records are, are wonderful. And, you know, you've got a very dedicated fan base. I'm sure you still hear. I mean, do you, do you hear from fans that were around back then? Because with the amount of touring and stuff you do today, it, it seems like you've got a very loyal base. Is that how you read it? Yeah, we not only hear from them, we see them regularly. You know, we go to the East Coast, we see people. I go to Europe, I got friends in Copenhagen, you know, uh, in Japan, you know, huge fans for years, years, you know. Uh, so, yeah, we're in regular touch with our fans. Were there, I mean, back then, were there artists that inspired you when you started playing, when the band started to catch on? Who was happening then that you looked to Emilio and felt like these guys get it? I can learn something from these guys because you're, you're young when this all starts. Um, were there other kind of veteran artists on the circuit at that point that were either helpful to you or that you looked up to on some level? Um, well, Santana was very helpful to us in uh, the early part of our career because he dug the band, and even though we were nobody, he, um, you know, he brought us out on tour, and you know, he didn't need us. They were filling the place, and but, and plus, we made him play. <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. when we opened for him, he had to follow, and it was difficult. And to his credit, you know, he did his best to bring it every night. But I mean, he was number one in the world, and he wanted us around, and so that was very helpful to us. I'm speaking with Emilio Castillo. We're going to take a quick break here on The Moment. My name is Chris Septing. I appreciate you being with us. We will be right back. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. 
Chris Epting will be releasing the third edition of his best-selling baseball travel Bible, Roadside Baseball, in June 2019. Academy Award-nominated director Ken Burns said about Roadside Baseball, What a wonderful book. All the stations of the cross of our national pastime are here, big and small, telling and frivolous. I can imagine this book in the glove compartment of every true fan's car. A handy reference to this beloved game, no matter where in the country you are. The new edition features hundreds of new places to discover, more rare photos, stories, and trivia. It's everything you need to plan the baseball road trip of your dreams. Roadside Baseball, coming this June. Available for pre-order right now on Amazon.com. Every Saturday morning, listen for the Superstar Sports Talk Block on Voice America Variety. We've got the best programs. If you want to talk football, hunting, outdoors, racing, and more, the weekends belong to sports. And you'll find it every Saturday beginning at 6 a.m. Pacific Time and 9 a.m. Eastern Time. You'll hear from the players, owners, experts, and fans from around the world. It's the Saturday Superstar Sports Talk Block. Wow, that's a mouthful. And it's only on the Voice America Variety. Channel. Have you become a member yet? Sign up now to become a member of Voice America. It's always free and easy. Plus, you get to take advantage of some great member benefits. Get unlimited access to millions of hours of on-demand content across all of our channels. Keep track of your favorite episodes, shows, and hosts in your own customizable library. Find out what shows you might be interested in based on your favorites. Plus, you get insider access with our newsletter. Membership gives you more. Sign up at voiceamerica.com and click register at the top right. listening to The Moment with Chris Epting. If you have a question or comment about our show, please send an email to Chris at chrisepting.com. That's chris at chrisepting.com. Now, back to The Moment. Thank you for rejoining me. I'm sitting here with Emilio Castillo from the Great Tower of Power. Emilio, we have a, a phone call here from Carol in California. Carol, are you there? I am. How are you, Chris? I'm good. Hey, say hi to uh, to Emilio from Tower Power. Hi, Emilio. I have I am a huge fan. I'm a Bay Area girl, and I've seen you a zillion times. And so, thank you, thank you so much for the music. Um, I just I think you guys are awesome. And because I I am a person that has gone to a zillion concerts, and I feel like I graduated from Winterland. I wanted to know what your relationship with Bill Graham was. And I know you touched on him a little bit earlier, but for me, being a music lover, um, if we didn't have Bill in the Bay Area, oh my gosh, I, I can't even imagine what music would have been like. So what's your take on Bill Graham? Well, I have many stories about my relationship with Bill Graham. I'll just give you one or two of them. Bill was a phenomenal guy. He could be very scary. He could be very compassionate. But he he was the he's the guy that started it all. I don't think rock and roll today would be what it is had it not been for Bill Graham. I think corporate, you know, arena rock exists because of Bill Graham and places like the Fillmore, the Fillmore West, Winterland, uh, the Days on the Green, uh, so many, you know, different types of concerts that he he started, you know, and he loved us. And even there was a time early in our career when we actually fought for almost a year. And, uh, and me and Doc used to go try to apologize with him every Monday that we were in town. And uh, we finally settled up. And even after that, he was... Uh, 
huge friend and fan of the band. And I remember one Christmas uh, in the early 80s when we were not doing well, he always hired us for his private Christmas party. And uh, I was waiting after sound check. The guys had left me there. I was just kind of stuck. And he walked in. He goes, oh, good. You're here. I want to talk to you. And uh, he goes, sit down. Don't say nothing. And I thought, oh, well, <laughs> we're in trouble. Somebody must have done something. And he goes, you know, uh, he goes, uh, it's Christmas time. Let's just say I had a good roll of the dice. I know you guys have been struggling a little bit lately. He goes, I want to give you this envelope. It's got $10,000 in it. This is for you. You can split it with the band. You can take a portion of it, give it to the band. Whatever you want to do, this is for you. Merry Christmas. And uh, he walked out, and the guys got back an hour later. I was in the back room of the old Waldorf. There was a pool table. I threw $10,000 in cash on the table, and I said, Merry Christmas from Bill Graham. And, you know, he still paid us the twenty-five grand for the gig that night. Wow. Where were you, Emilio, when you heard that he uh, had been taken from us? I was somewhere in Europe. I can't remember the city, but we were stunned. And, you know, uh, he was with Huey Lewis that night. So we were very close to Huey Lewis in the news. So. Well, you know, you, you uh, kind of segueing there. Carol, thank you very much for the call, by the way. You know, segueing, you mentioned, you know, Graham reaching out and being concerned about you guys. I mean, Huey Lewis was another one that at, at a difficult time, um, you know, it was a good moment for you, right, to get to know him. Describe that a little bit. I'm not sure people are aware of what his admiration for Tower of Power meant to you and how things kind of changed at a, at a critical point. Well, we were playing once again at Bill's Club with the old Waldorf, and Huey showed up and came backstage and was gushing all over us about our new material. And uh, and I said, you know, I'm, I'm, I was wondering how we got backstage. I didn't know who he was. <laughs> And he goes, oh, man, he goes, uh, my name's Huey, man. Me and my band were big fans of yours. And uh, I had heard about the name, Huey Lewis in the News. Out of all those weird names, Devo and The Knack and all that stuff, I right. thought, Huey Lewis in the News, that's a cool name. And I told him, I go, so you're, you're Huey Lewis. He goes, yeah. He goes, we love you guys, you know, blah, blah, blah. And then a short time later, uh, we were doing a recording session at Columbia, and he came over. He said, we're across the hall. We got this song. We think it'd be really cool if you put your horns on it. And we did uh, Hope You Love Me Like You Say You Do and Doing It All For My Baby. And when I heard their tracks, I thought, wow, these guys are soulful. These aren't like these other punk new right. wave bands, you know. And we became friends. And, and when, when he hit it really big with the sports album, he asked us to go on tour. And I said, you know, I can't. I got Tower of Power. And he goes, you know, we can pay it really well. It really sounds good with the you know, with the horns when you sit in with us. And I said, I'll tell you what, you know, if you agree to promote Tower of Power at every turn and allow me to bring the band out to do midnight shows after the arena show in the same city, and you guys announce it at the arena and announce that you're coming to sit in with Tower of Power, I go, I'll do it. And he was the man of his word. He did all of that. He mentioned us in every interview. He featured us prominently in every show. He announced our you know, we'd be playing the bottom line after uh, Madison Square Garden. And uh, he'd say, we're all going down to party with Tower Power tonight. And we're going to sit in with T.O.P. And, the, you know, the place would be besieged with people. And he helped resurrect our career. That's incredible. I mean, that's that's really something. Are you guys in touch today? Yeah. I mean, you know, not as much as we were back then. But, uh, I, I, you know, his, uh, his partner in the band, Johnny Cola, just came and saw us a month ago. And sort of filled me in on what's going on with him with his uh, 
is hearing loss. It's a sad issue. Yeah, yeah. But that's a wonderful story, though. I mean, um, that he, but again, that came from his love of the band. And I guess when you start with that, uh, good things can flow from that. You know, you you bring up sessions like you played with Hugh Lewis in the News. What are some of the other sessions? Because you guys really did become I say guns for hire, but you played with a lot of great people who were fans of Tower of Power. What are sessions that you remember, Emilio, going in with other bands and adding stuff to their tracks? One of the the ones I'm most proud of are all the recordings we did with Little Feet. Yeah. The first one we did was a song called Spanish Moon. And once again, I had heard the name of the band, Little Feet, but I had no idea what they sounded like. And uh, there was a guy producing the session named Van Dyke Parks. He was a real (laughs) eclectic guy. And he comes up to us and he says, the way I want you to approach this song is like when, when the cow pie hits the side of the barn and it explodes, that's what I want you to be thinking. <laughs> We're all looking at him like, okay. And he played the track and Greg Adams' horn arrangement was phenomenal. And I was like, wow, it's so soulful. Lowell George singing and playing guitar. And then we wound up doing most of their records and we did their biggest one, uh, the live album, Waiting for Columbus. And we toured, you know, uh, and recorded that album and it, it was great we became great friends with them i'm very proud of that work you i'm not sure did you meet them there's a there's a pretty famous i think i believe it's early 1975 i think in january where warner brothers sends a package tour over to europe promotional tour it's you guys it's the doobie brothers it's um uh graham central station it's uh little feet a couple other bands as well bonnaroo i think there's been called bonnaroo at that point montrose Montrose. And is that where you first um, come into contact with Lowell George and Little Feet? No, we had already done Spanish Moon and we used to see Oh, okay. What, what do you remember about Lowell George? Because again, he's another one that, another one of these mythical figures that, that was gone too soon. Um, what are your memories of working with him? Extremely soulful, incredible mm-hmm. guitar player. His voice was phenomenal. Uh, a real perfectionist. He would, he would do these long sound checks where he would be out at the board setting up the mix for Billy Payne's wife at the time, Franny. And he would just be merciless on these people, you know, and a, and a real man of excess and yet, you know, uh, funny and uh, compassionate and just a great, great guy. And of course, the great Bill Payne on keyboards for Little Feet, who now has been with the Doobie Brothers for a long time. You have all these great co-mingling artists over the years that you've obviously played with a lot, but it's got to be fun when you run into somebody like that on the road with the kind of histories you all have together. Yeah, I just ran into Bill Payne. We did a gig with the Doobies at uh, the big ballpark in San Francisco. And uh, he turned around and goes, hey, Mimi, how you doing? I, I let go, Bill, what are you doing here? I didn't know he was with the Doobies, you know. Uh, Perfect match. Oh, absolutely. But do you remember, Emilio, back when, again, when, when horn bands, when there were, you know, certain really popular outfits, you know, Tower Power, Chicago, we, how conscious were you of, of, say, an earth, wind, and fire, or blood, sweat, and tears? I mean, did you listen to that stuff a lot, or were you pretty much locked into what you were doing and not so much paying attention to what more direct competition might have been like? No, I listened uh, to Chicago and Blood, Sweat, and Tears before we actually got signed to Bill Graham. Mm-hmm. They, them and uh, Sons of Champlin. Right. They were all horn bands, and, and I listened to them. And uh, when Earth, Wind, and Fire came out, uh, I, mean, I, I played with them. They opened for us, you know, when, when they were still with Warner Brothers. And then wow. when they went to uh, Columbia and had their huge hits, you know, I was a big fan of their music, and I listened. 
So there were, it's interesting, yeah, because again, that, that period in the 70s, there was such a, a nice, um, a good market for those kinds of sounds, you know, horn bands. And then you had like, say, like a Cool in the Gang or an Ohio Players. I mean, there were, there were quite a few and they're all very different, all very distinctive. Um, you were all successful. I mean, you all had big hit records and there was room for it back then. Do you think back then there was more um, opportunity to, to have this kind of diversity? If you just remember the AM radio back then, the, the, what you would hear in a half an hour would be, you know, 20 different styles. Did it strike you back then as being particularly diverse on the radio back in the 70s? Well, certainly when FM became the norm, you know, uh, they were playing albums. And we used to go up to K-San Radio in San Francisco and hang out with Dusty Street for like four hours and just play records. And we could play whatever we wanted, you know, and people were loving it. Right, right. So, so that was great. You know, uh, eventually, you know, radio became what it is now. And you, there's like 13 songs that they rotate over. <laughs> and, you know, yeah. But, uh, yeah, no, that was a great time for radio. Yeah, but I think for even for the concert business, again, there was just there were so many. Um, it just it was such a it felt like such a, a more diverse kind of uh, choices that we had as listeners. You know what I mean? And uh, you know, again, a lot of us kind of uh, lament, you know, missing those days, especially live performances. Um, I think that you know, uh, once corporate rock settled in, you know, and and, and the music business became all corporate. Uh, you know, genres became very important and fitting people into a box became very important. And, and that's unfortunate, but, you know, it is what it is. Everything changes and it's going to change again. Mm -hmm. But I, I think the music business is very healthy today. The concert business, the recording business, the radio mm -hmm. business, it's all healthy. It's just in a different way. Right. Um, let's talk a little bit, Amelia. I mean, you, you talk about the 12 step, you talk about recovery and what you were going through and that the, in the eighties in particular, things got really rough. Why don't you walk us through just what that process was for you when you realized that you had to get help, you know, after a lot of years of excess, well, what, what's that like for you and paint that picture for us if you would. Well, as I said, you know, I was pretty functional as a alcoholic addict. Mm -hmm. What happened for me was, you know, uh, it all stopped working. Uh, I was drinking uh, all day and, and I was doing drugs all day, but I felt like I was in withdrawal for like a year. And I had no idea about the 12-step program. I went into a, a treatment facility and I didn't go there to find the 12-step program. I thought they were going to dry me out, let me sleep and eat. And I, I had accepted the fact I was going to die before I was 40. Oh. I snuck into a lecture while I was in there. Uh, I was actually in detox. I wasn't supposed to go, but I heard people talking about the program, this and the program that, and I snuck in and I heard a lecture on the 12 steps. And that day I realized there's a way to stop drinking and using and not be miserable. And that was never in my experience. Every time I stopped, I was miserable. So uh, that day I decided I'm never doing it again, but I knew I was going to have to do everything they suggested. So I got a sponsor. I read the literature. I hooked up with a higher power. I, I went to meetings. I, I created a support group. Uh, I do, and I still do today. It's 32 years later. I've been sober a long time. I still do all the stuff I learned in my first year because it still works. That's amazing. How bad did it get for you, Emilio? I mean, I don't know. In the 80s, the band wasn't really working a lot, right? I mean, things had kind of come to, a, to a, a crawl, as it were. And what was it like for you personally not playing as much? I mean, you know what I mean? Like, describe what it was like for you right before you go and seek treatment and everything. Well, actually, that's, that's not really true. We always were able to play, you know. Um, 
But what was happening was our recording career. You know, we right. couldn't get a record deal. And as soon as I got sober, uh, another guy that I knew that was a big fan of the band, uh, he had gotten sober and he had become a vice president at Epic Records. Mm -hmm. I contacted him. He signed us to a seven album deal. So as soon as I got sober and hooked up with other people in the industry that were sober, things got better, you know. Um, but, you know, when you say what was it like during that down period, I mean, it was a struggle. It was uh, always just trying to get normal, just trying to, you know, show a, a good face, put a good face on and, and do life. And it was getting more and more difficult. And as I say, the last year and a half, all of that stuff stopped working. So I had a real problem. Right. Before that, that was my solution. And all of a sudden, the solution wasn't working anymore. I needed a new solution. It seems like as much, you hear stories about bands that as the industry changes around them, and you always hear about sort of you know, certain rock and roll bands from the 80s when grunge kicks in, there's no place for them anymore. But Tower of Power to me seems timeless enough where you've been able to sort of effectively ride out a lot of the changes. Is that your perception as well, that there's always kind of been a place for that sound, that there is a timelessness to it? Yeah, there, there was a, you know, a time for us when we, we felt like we didn't fit. You know, the disco thing happened and, you know, Columbia wanted us to try a, a Motown song, disco style. We tried that. You know, it just, it, it, it bastardized our sound, you know. And then they started calling us dinosaurs when all the record labels turned from us. They said their music will never be popular again. And, and the only bands that were popular were bands that, you know, had been together for not even six months, you know. <laughs> uh, and for, you know, for a while, we thought, you know, they wanted us to sound like the other bands, you know, and we couldn't. We always sounded like us, and we thought it was a curse. But after, you know, we lost all the record deals, I told the guys, let's just go back to doing it the way we do it. And when we did that, things got better, and we realized it's not a curse that we don't sound like everybody else. It's a blessing. And that's what you want as an artist. You want to have your own signature, your own voice, and sound like yourself not everybody else. Right. And what's interesting too, is that tower of power, you know, we joked a little bit offline before that it's almost like a university given the number of players that have come through yet there is a sound and there is a feel that no matter how many different players you had, it seems consistent. What well, people are allowed to kind of explore their own musicality. There is still, uh, I mean, to my ears, anyhow, a distinctive uh, tower of power of sound. Do you agree with that? I mean, Oh, yeah. I mean, the, the Tower Power sound is a conceptual sound, and it's in our blood. You know, I remember we had a singer in the early 90s named Tom Bose, and he used to say, don't worry about what song we're going to do, because any song you do, you're going to sound like Tower Power. You can <laughs> yellow pages, and you sound like Tower Power. You know? I am talking with Emilia Castillo from Tower Power. I'm Chris Epting. This is The Moment, and we'll be right back after this commercial. Find out what's happening on the Voice America Talk Radio Network by keeping up with us on Twitter. You can find us at Voice America TRN. Chris Epting will be releasing the third edition of his best-selling baseball travel Bible, Roadside Baseball, in June 2019. Academy Award-nominated director Ken Burns said about Roadside Baseball, What a wonderful book. All the stations of the cross of our national pastime are here, big and small, telling and frivolous. I can imagine this book in the glove compartment of every true fan's car. A handy reference to this beloved game, no matter where in the country you are. The new edition features hundreds of new places to discover, more rare photos, stories, and trivia. It's everything you need to plan the baseball road trip of your dreams. 
Roadside Baseball, coming this June. Available for pre-order right now on Amazon.com. Have you had a chance to check out Voice America's online magazine and blog? If you love our hosts and shows, check out articles that give an even deeper perspective, plus topics about health and fitness, movie reviews, philosophy, business tips and tactics, spirituality, positive thought, current events, and even more about your favorite hosts. It's just a click away at blog.voiceamerica.com. That's blog.voiceamerica.com. The Voice America Press Blog. All access all the time. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit facebook.com forward slash voice America. You are listening to The Moment with Chris Epting. If you have a question or comment about our show, please send an email to Chris at chrisepting.com. That's chris at chrisepting.com. Now, back to The Moment. Hey there, I am back chatting with Emilio Castillo of Tower of Power fame. Emilio, you guys, as you mentioned earlier, uh, the new collection is called Step Up. It came out pretty much right around when all of this virus stuff kicked in. But let's talk about the making of the album because it's getting great reviews. It sounds great. It definitely feels like a Tower of Power record, but it also feels modern. What is it like today to go in and record compared to what it used to be like, say, in the late 60s, early 70s, from sort of a process standpoint? And how, how did this record all come together? Well, you know, for one thing, I, I'm a, a nitpicker. You know, I like things tight and I like things perfect. So, you know, the the... The pursuit of perfection is much more attainable these days with the uh, uh, technology, you know, and, and I enjoy that, you know. But one thing I learned years ago from Huey Lewis is, you know, use all the technology you can, but don't let it use you. And that was a valuable lesson to me. So we, we use it, but we also make sure we, you know, keep our identity and, and do it the way we do it. So when this comes together, how do you do it? Are you all in one place? Are you doing it the way a lot of bands do today where you're, you're sharing files and things? What was the physical process of putting together Step Up? We, uh, no, we record the, the old-fashioned way. We go to the recording studio. You know? Everybody. Yeah. Uh, well, at first I take the rhythm section. It's me and the rhythm section. I do a work vocal. I, first I show them the song. We go through it. I tell them my vision for it. And then everybody has a, an idea about it. It's my, my job to filter all those ideas. And when we finally arrive at what we like, we lay a track and I'll sing the word vocal. And I did 18 tracks like that up in Sacramento. Then I went down to LA and tried a couple of days with a producer named Joe Vanelli. Mm-hmm. And uh, just fabulous producer. And by then, I was trying to do uh, 25 songs total because, uh, you know, I wanted just really to have a large choice. And uh, by then, I realized with my touring and everything, the project was too big for me. And I asked Joe to help me finish it. And that proved to be a really smart decision because he's an incredible musician, incredible producer, great engineer, and he's got technology down. And so uh, after that, we actually wound up doing 10 more tracks. So we recorded 28 in all. And on our 50th anniversary, we released Soul Side of Town. But right. we already had this new record done. And but we knew we wanted to wait until 2020 to put this one out. And so it came out March 20th. And are you happy with the finished uh, results? I'm ecstatic by both records. They're just phenomenal. Best records I've ever made. If you listen to them, you know, rhythmically, Horn-wise, vocally, 
songwriting-wise, technologically-wise, mix-wise, every single way. The records are just phenomenal. So proud. <laughs> No, they're they're great, and and again, there's something about it where it's it's. I think it's hard to define what the tower of power sound is. It's you know it's kind of like, you know you know it when you hear it, it but but it but it's definitely there. And uh, and again, that's interesting too because I do you know what, what's the total number if you know offhand of players who have come through like the tower of power university as you call it. Yeah, no, I lost track of that number years ago. <laughs> it's a lot though, right? And and oh yeah. Uh, but but you still manage to maintain. I mean, how do you when you bring a new guy in? Um, is there a speech they get? Is there is there like a, a a rule book or something? Like how do you bring somebody in uh, to the fold these days and and get them up to speed? Well, first of all, you know nobody even shows up for an audition with Tara Parr that doesn't fully understand the concept already. I mean, right? You've got a legacy. It looks good on the resume to say you did time with Tara Parr. So oh, sure. Top quality musicians that know the concept. You know, the speech they get is drugs and alcohol don't work here. We've got a great reputation of over 50 years. We want nothing that's going to besmirch that reputation. You know, you need to understand that before you even get the audition. Wow. Amelia, are there shows that you remember, say, you mentioned uh, like recently playing with the Doobies at one of the stadium shows, but going back to like the 70s, are there certain, like, did you guys play at the Bill Graham's, I might be wrong here, but the snack benefit that he did at Kizar Stadium, do you remember that? Yeah, we played the snack benefit. That's You did. You can watch that on YouTube, yeah. That was a big show. It was the Doobies, I believe Neil Young, Bob Dylan. I mean, that was in San Francisco culture kind of a really famous show. I think Marlon Brando came out at, uh, and Joe said a few. Fires. Right, right. Are there other shows from back then that stand out to you as being um, monumental on that level or memorable for some other reason? Well, the one we always refer to, you know, he, he uh, had us open for Aretha Franklin at the Fillmore West. And, uh, you know, they recorded that album, Aretha Live at the Fillmore that weekend. Ray Charles came down and sat in and, in the middle of the last song, Bernard Purdy, her drummer, got up and called David Garibaldi, our drummer, over, and he plays the ride out on the record. And, you know, it was a phenomenal weekend. Uh, one of my high points of my life was I was in the dressing room and Aretha Franklin was walking towards the door and the dressing room was so packed with people because it was such a huge event. Uh-huh. I couldn't get in. And as I was trying <laughs> to get out, I turned sideways and she snuck in the doorway. We were nose to nose in the doorway. And she says... Tower Power, my favorite band. Really? That was a great weekend for us. Wow, what a moment. What an what an incredible moment. Um, it, well, yeah, you, you, didn't, you didn't really play the large, uh, like there were outdoor festivals back then that I think you played a few. That was kind of tracing what, you know, what the bigger shows might have been, but that's certainly a great one right there. Um, do you miss those days at all? I mean, when you think of a moment like that, is, it seems uh, particularly special. Do you miss, say, the early to mid-70s when that stuff was going on? Um, I don't miss it, you know. Uh, I value it. I'm, I have fond memories, you know. I remember playing Sedalia, Missouri, a uh, big, huge uh, rock festival, 88,000 people there, and they're helicoptering us back and forth from a, uh, a Holiday Inn to go play. And, you know, those kind of shows, are, they're, they're phenomenal. They're great. We did a lot of Days on the Green for Bill Graham. And right. We, we still do a lot of big festivals in Europe, you know, the North Sea Jazz Festival, Monaco mm-hmm. Jazz Festival, a lot of big festivals over there. 
Amelia, what are, what are some of the artists over the years, you mentioned Huey Lewis, that, that have come to you and expressed their love of Tower of Power? Because I know you've influenced a lot of people, and I would imagine that you've heard from some pretty big names uh, that were and are uh, big Tower of Power fans. Do any jump out at you that, that have come to you or uh, either, either to hire you to play or just express their love of the band? Well, most recently, uh, there's a guy, uh, his name is Jacob Collier out of London, and he's mentored by Quincy Jones. Mm-hmm. And, uh, he contacted us because we were going over to uh, Europe and he said he wanted us to play on his album. He was doing these four albums, uh, putting them out, you know, uh, kind of like four chapters, you know. Right. And he wanted us to be on the fourth one. I think it should be out soon. But uh, he wrote a song about Tower of Power and brought <laughs> the whole band in and we recorded all day and we all sang on it and played on it. And he uh, he sang it and produced it. And just phenomenal, you know. Because there was a point, right, where, where people could hire Tower of Power to come in and do session work, right? And I mean, I know you're on a lot of records from that. Um, horns, for sure. Not right. so much the rhythm section. But that's, uh, that's one of the uh, dreams that we have, is to use the band as a session band, you know, to bring the whole 10-piece band in and, uh, you know, back artists like Sting and, uh, you know, Bruno Mars, whoever it may be. You know, we'd love to do tracks with all those artists, and we're looking to do that before we before we go back to the dust. Yeah. Well, when things do come back and, and resume, hopefully sooner than later, but how many shows are you guys playing a year now? Well, we're on the road 200 days a year, but, you know, some <laughs> of those are travel days and off days, but it's been 200 days a year now for many, many years. That's incredible. I mean, that's, uh, that's probably what you were doing back in, in the mid-70s, right? Um, yeah, maybe not even that much. <laughs> you know, we ramped it up probably in the nineties and, uh, we're comfortable with, it. you know, people uh, that I know, they say, you know, how do you, how can you do it? How can you travel that much? So, you know, it's, it's all I've ever known. I've been doing this since I was 17 years old. Does it still feel fresh to you? Like when you go out each night, do you still get a charge? I mean, does it ever, uh, is there ever any kind of sense of being jaded or do you still get excited when you go out and, uh, and, and start the show? Well, 90% of the time, I'm still excited. Uh, we have great shows, great crowds, and it's very exciting. But, you know, depending on what day you ask me, if the travel <laughs> up, if we got, you know, held over for four hours in Fort Worth and, you know, yeah. we get to Boston in time, you know, whatever it is, you know, uh, it, you, there's rough days out there. But for the most part, probably easily over 95% of the time. I was talking to John Oates recently, and he said that um, he feels like he's getting paid to travel, he'll play for free, but you're paying for the travel because that's really where the effort comes in these days of getting them from, uh, from point A to point B. That's a good way of putting it. And then, so, so next year, so next year, the touring will resume and, and you're back at it. I mean, you, you shot, um, a documentary for the 50th, right? Yes, we did at the Fox theater in Oakland. And we augmented the band that night. We had, uh, some alumni, Chester Thompson played, Lenny Pickett, Bruce Conti, Rocco. Mm-hmm. We had an extra trombone player and two extra background vocalists and 10 strings. Yeah, you guys, it seems to me a band like Tower of Power is so poised for like a Netflix series or something. There's so many great stories, so many great players and so many di- different uh, chapters to the story. I don't know if you've thought about that, but it's such an American legacy that, uh, that has spanned. I mean, again, to be... Here from 1968, not a lot of bands can say that, and especially from that era. You know, I marvel, especially when we mentioned the Doobie Brothers, 
you know, two founding members, you know, Pat Simmons and Tom Johnson out there getting it done with Bill Pan in the band and, uh, you know, John McPhee, who, who played with Huey Lewis in a band called, Cl- I don't know if you knew Clover back in the day, uh, right. but if you remember Clover, um, but, but there are bands that are out there doing it and there's a, there's a work ethic to it. When you mentioned being on the road 200 days a year, um, I think that's pretty remarkable at any age to be able to do that and play at the level that you do. So it, it's interesting that no matter what you did back in the 70s, you, you're still able to do this today. I don't know if that's surprising to you, but there's certainly some inner strength you and the guys have. We talk about that on the bus a lot. You know, we say, you know, it seems like this stuff keeps us younger. You know, we look at our high school reunion photos. And we're like, man, they look old, you know. <laughs> well, that's, you know, you, that you say that. I was going to ask you about that. I wondered if you feel it keeps you young because to me, it's almost like a B.B. King syndrome. You know, it's like you're going to play until you can't play anymore, right? Because if you didn't, what would you do, right? So is there that sense that if you didn't do it, you would actually get old? Because I... You know, I think about athletes today that can't, you know, play their sport because of what's going on and musicians. And it sort of robs them of the ability to be what they are, which is what I think, in effect, keeps you young. Do you feel that, that being on the road is almost like a fountain of youth for you? I do. Uh, you know, B.B. King was my role model, man. I retoured with him a few years back. and I remember him coming down off the bus. You know, the musicians are on the stage and he's trying to get down from the bus. It was <laughs> It was pretty heavy, but right then, you know, uh-huh. you get down and these guys would help him get on stage. And I think, man, this cat is old, you know, but he'd get on the stage and the light would hit him. And he was like, you know, 40 years younger. And he'd play two hours and bring it, you know. And I was like, that's going to be me. I'm going to do that. People say, when are you going to retire? I say, there's no retirement in the Bible. That's a man-made thing. I'm going to bop till I drop. Amen, man. That's that. That's it. That's perfect. I, uh, Emilio Casillo, I want to thank you very much. This has been so enjoyable. Again, not just as a big tower power fan, but to hear somebody whose life has been so redemptive, not just musically, but the fact that you you found everything that you needed to, to continue and survive, which allows you to get out there and keep making great music. The new album from Tower of Power is called Step Up. Highly recommended. It's getting great reviews. Emilio, I just can't wait till you're back on the road again, man. After talking to you, I am so poised to go out and catch a Tower of Power show. I can't tell you. You can't imagine how ready we are to get out there, man. We miss each other. We miss the fans. We miss the traveling. We miss the food. We miss everything about it. Well, it's going to be soon. In the meantime, you take care and, and stay healthy and safe and all that. It'll be here sooner than later, man. But I really want to thank you for taking. This has been a, a really enjoyable hour for me. It's always fun to connect with somebody you grew up listening to that, uh, that again, your story, your, your arc is so positive and so redemptive. I give you a lot of credit for being here today and doing what you do. So thank you very much. My pleasure, Chris. Good talking to you. I'm Chris Septing. This has been The Moment. I want to thank Emilio Castillo for hanging out with me uh, for this hour. And I will be back right here next week. And thank you for listening. I'll see you then. Thank you for taking a moment out of your busy week to join us for The Moment. Be sure to join Chris Epting for another edition every Wednesday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time and 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. We'll see you here next week.